This device isn't a spaceship. It's a time machine. Goes backwards, forwards. Takes us to a place where we ache to go again. It's not called the wheel. It's called the carousel. Hello and welcome to the Carousel Podcast. This is your host, Isaac Simpson. And welcome to our AI episode. Finally, the AI episode is here. Um, and we have the perfect guy to talk about it, Brian Chow, uh, who you have undoubtedly seen on Twitter. Very insightful account. Actually, one of my favorites. I always love seeing the stuff you post. Um, and really great thoughts and perspectives on technology and artificial intelligence. And coming from a place that I would say is not really left or right, but just very clear-eyed, very based, very just like willing to tell the truth. Uh, so welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah. Um. So, you know, on your bio, you have a couple things. You have Alliance for the Future, and then you have Pluralism.ai, which is your substack. So what is Alliance for the Future? Let's start with that. Yeah, Alliance for the Future, very excited to be on it. And it is basically, you know, there's a lot of, I think, people often talk about this. There's a disconnect between DC and SF. You know, there's a disconnect between the people who actually work on AI and, you know, the people who are now trying to regulate it, who are now trying to, uh, in my view, do many things that are going to be disastrous. Uh, and Alliance for the Future is an attempt to change that. It's uh, primarily an attempt to inform if necessary, an attempt to uh, uh, an attempt to change the law, an, an attempt to uh, back uh, both politicians and uh, people in executive agencies, people who really have uh, power to affect what actually happens, what the regulations actually are, and to basically say that you know not everything is off the table. That of course there are negative uses, but the priority is absolutely going to be on regulating the uses, not on the you know, it's it's like a tool, not on the actual technology, because you can really see this parallel to almost everything else. You know, some people are going to use cars to uh to commit crimes. You know, hit 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 and runs. That certainly happens. We wouldn't ban all cars over it. You see this with uh, analogies to the printing press. You know, the printing press, certainly wars were fought in uh, in the name of it, or at least in things very closely related to it. Martin Luther's 95 Theses. But I think none of us would go back in time and say, you know, we should have just all banned the printing press. And our perspective and my perspective is that it really is no different, that AI is a tool, it can be used for good, it can be used for evil, but by far what people are going to do with it is uh, to use it for good. And so... Um... Alliance for the Future is like a think tank? Yeah, it's a think tank. Uh, it's at its very starting uh, stage right now, brand new. And yeah, we would very and very much appreciate the support, uh, AFFuture.org. Uh, yeah. So um, are you part of, so you, know, you see the pro 
or I guess you would say the anti-AI regulation crowd is often they put on their profiles and you see them call themselves effective accelerationists, which is <laughs> E dash slash ACK, which uh, people have probably seen. So are you a member of EAC? I think that just the, the current EAC, like crowd dynamics, in general, I don't really like the, the crowd dynamics. It leads to a sort of branding game that is not that related to the actual reality. I think that when it comes to, you know, political more like policy recommendations, especially when it comes to AI, I'm not sure about what their uh, policy uh, beliefs uh, are on other issues. But at least when it comes to AI, I probably agree with, you know, 90% of uh, what they would support or more. But, you know, on, on websites like Twitter, there's a certain kind of participation dynamic. You know, there are a lot of people who are there to uh, kind of just enjoy the vibes. And that's sort of different from what I use Twitter for and what I genuinely try to accomplish. So, so that's the reason why I don't really consider myself EAC. But you know, I'm sympathetic to many of the many of the ideas that they have. Definitely, you're not a joiner, you might say. It's not just that, you know. Obviously, I'm part of AFTF Alliance for the Future. Uh, I'm part of various organizations. I'm I'm very happy to contribute in that way. But uh, not not when it comes to Twitter and when it comes to the kind of Twitter posting wars that people have like that's you know that's not really something that i want to spend my time on yeah. I, i'm sure you've involved with this right you know yeah. they're going to be uh it's really tied into the history of EAC because it was sort of built up as this opposition to uh effective altruism that's why they use effective in the title uh and so you'll get you know the, the social pattern is something like you'll get uh effective altruists posting one thing and then you'll have a bunch of people quote tweeting them on the EAC side and it's you know all well and good for driving an engagement and for uh, as like an entertainment product I do think you know I read it once in a while it is a genuinely you know it's a genuinely good entertainment product but it's not I, I think that how related like how how related I asked myself the question you know how related is doing that to actually influencing the policy outcomes that I want versus doing stuff with Alliance for the Future, doing stuff with other organizations. I think that the latter is just much more of a priority for me. This isn't to say, you know, like I think that EAC people are bad, you know, like, or that I don't see that a value in like having fun on Twitter. Like, you know, ha having fun on Twitter is fine. It's not, it's not some, some sort of huge problem. I don't have some, you know, dislike for them, but it's just not my, it's just not my thing, you know? Totally. I completely understand. So let's talk, maybe the way in is to talk about legislation, because that's kind of where you're starting. Um, what are the threats to AI from regulators? Right. So we can talk about in the long term and in the short term. In the short term, I think that what we're seeing right now is attempts by, uh, I think there was actually like a, a recent statement by uh by the SEC or by, I think, the the spokesperson for the SEC uh, who targeted EAC specifically. And <laughs> I mean, I say, I mean, I say uh, EAC is kind of detached from these things, but obviously it's getting much more involved. Um, and you saw recently a statement by 
the FTC, which was very concerning, which basically um, looked at uh, or defined AI, a statement from the FTC that defined AI as uh, software that builds a model of the world or that develops understanding of the world, which if you've ever worked in finance, if you've ever worked in uh, economics in general, uh, if you've ever worked in um, even something like, you know, even something like the weather forecast, you can argue is doing these things, right? So so the FTC issues this uh, order, the statement that has you know, that has a definition of AI that's basically all software or almost all software. And that is where I see the uh, incoming threat, at least in the next uh, year or two, because uh, I'm not sure how much your audience is informed about this. So feel free to break and break in. But we're in the we're, we're in a setup legislatively where the Republicans control the House, the Democrats control the Senate and the presidency. It's a it's a split Congress, as they say. And this means that a lot of the time, if there is something that Democrats propose, uh, then Republicans will be just incentivized to vote against it and vice versa. So it's 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 less likely that there's going to be things passed in that uh, in that arena. I think that if we are looking at possibilities for legislative actions against AI, it would be something like the um, reauthorization of the military budget or um, or reconciliation, this, uh, this uh, general budgeting bill that gets passed every year where there can be a lot of, it's a must vote bill, so you can't do the filibuster. There's much more um, things that are essentially forced through that are amended to the bill that really don't have much of anything to do with the original purpose of either of those bills, but are are basically used as an opportunity for uh, interest groups to get what they want in committee. So so you'll see, uh, to, to break down the process a little bit, you'll see uh, a law that passes through committee that passes through um, various parts of uh, various subgroups of the Senate or of the House that are assigned to these issues. And they have the ability to add and remove items to to these bills. And then everyone gets together and, you know, votes yes or no on the bill uh, altogether. So everything is like crammed together into this one bill. Uh, th this is getting a little bit niche. But, no, 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 uh, no. It's good to know this stuff. Some, yes, yeah, so some Republicans uh, have wanted to get... And I think like some small number of Democrats, like there might be some people in the kind of Andrew Yang partic participatory democracy crowd, but basically like small factions of both parties have wanted something called a line item veto, which basically means that, you know, you don't vote on the entire bill all at once. You say like, okay, you have the first item in this bill, we all vote on it. Second item of this bill, we all vote on it and so on and so forth. Uh, but we don't have that right now. So I, I would say the primary legislative problem would be uh, these two kind of must pass bills. OK, but so what what are the must pass bills that are that are going through that have the. Yeah, I mean, what are they? So so one is the budget uh, reconciliation, which is essentially like it's it's hard to describe these bills because the fact that they are must pass bills are just means that like people will throw random stuff into them into right, them, right, right. These, these are pork, basically right? like pork. massive isn't that, that's pork isn't that pork yeah yeah this yeah, is yeah. you know <laughs> the 2012 days the pork barrel spending yeah you know <laughs> it's the it's the bridge to nowhere uh that, yeah. that part of that is kind of true right but that's like 
that to me that's less of a worry than uh than something like ai regulation which really is like it's sort of more than that because you can argue that like pork barrel spending is technically under the purview of uh, budget reconciliation. You can say, you know, like especially if you're if you're reducing the amount, you know, this is something that could be good for the budget. That's the that's the main idea behind the budget reconciliation bill uh, is that you do things that are related to the budget. But a lot of these measures, these kind of um, essentially what the Biden executive order was pushing is a kind of surveillance regime for AI companies, much higher reporting requirements, which are not, you know, are not devastating on their own. They're a kind of red tape that, you know, could be an obstacle for uh, startups that might be annoying for them if they're, you know, just starting out. But it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to stop something like OpenAI at all, right? That's going to be, you know, a few million dollars more to their lawyers, but they're, you know, a multi-billion dollar company. So so, so it's not a big problem for someone like them. Uh, but so, something that more expand, what it does is it paves the way for something more expansive, Right. I think that Republicans have made this point on a bunch of other issues on, you know, demographics, on uh, guns that once uh, left wing organizations start collecting, uh, start start tracking, you know, individuals based on these categories or based on these other factors, then they, they're now at liberty to do much more on those things. Yeah, right. They, they have a lot more leverage to mess with people. Um, so, but this FTC designation calling pretty much all software AI, how is that related to the bills? Like what in the bills is going to... Oh, it's not. Utilize it. That's uh, a separate thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so so I was basically just listing different things. Sorry if that wasn't clear. No, it's, but fine, yeah. it's fine. Three, uh, I would say that, you know, we, we can split this into two categories. There's the legislative threats and then there's yeah. the threats from executive agencies. Yeah. And then within the executive agencies, there are, there are different there are different agencies as well. Um, yeah. So the actions of the FTC, the actions of uh, the SEC and um, whatever whatever legislation is doing um, is like basically unconnected. Well, well, you might argue that, you know, many of the same uh, lobbying groups are involved, many of the same uh, interests are involved, the same companies are involved. So they're connected in that way. But in terms of, um, in terms of like, does the law that, uh, does the law that Congress passed directly affect the FTC's actions or vice versa? Um, in, in, in the most like direct sense, no. In the sense that, like, you know, people, different special interests are prioritizing, you know, money spent on these different venues in the sense that, you know, media coverage focuses on these in the, in the sense that there's a kind of broader, you know, pro-AI and anti-AI movement, like they're connected in that way. But in terms of like direct legal connections, there are very few. Got it. So, all right. So there's these administrative threats and then there's the legislative threats. Um, the legislative threats, you're saying one of them is the budget. What was the other one? Uh, the other one was, I think the, essentially like the reauthorization of the military budget. I forget the, the, the formal right. name right okay. now. And so both of these budgets are containing money that will fund anti, they'll fund like. AI regulators or like what's in these budgets that's going after AI? So these things are not uh, publicly drafted. Oh. <laughs> um, or at least large parts of them 
large parts of them are not you know like the the committees can choose to release whatever they want and th this is actually a complaint that like many uh legislators both left and right will come will will make about this process uh th th this is because you know they're being forced to vote on something that they couldn't possibly have had time to read right by the yeah. time something makes out of, makes it out of committee and goes to uh the floor of congress for them to vote on they say like we it's literally like thousands of pages or at least hundreds of pages like we literally do not have the physical time to read all these bills <laughs> right, right. Uh, so in in terms of what specific uh thing is being proposed uh th there's no like definitive way to to look at it right you know i'm not a member i'm not a member of congress i'm not a senator i'm not on any of these committees i don't work for any of the committees so so uh i don't know um in terms of things that have been speculated by think tank or like things that have been proposed by uh kind of anti-ai think tanks things that have been uh discussed on twitter or on kind of news articles and so on or or things that i mean i say that it's not uh i say that's not related the processes between the ftc or these other executive agencies or uh or legislation but it might be related in the sense that they kind of you know take inspiration by these pro by these statements and for example uh the committees that have spawned off of biden's executive order right that might be another way in which these things are sort of foreshadowed so for example if we look at biden's executive order uh and look at that right now uh the biggest thing the biggest thing the the one like definitive thing that they wanted to do that they wanted to, to establish right away with their executive power is the kind of monitoring system that i talked about before where they're just kind of telling you know telling all the ai companies like you you have to give us these specific uh specifications you have to tell us you know how much compute you're working on and then the more kind of nebulous stuff, the more vague stuff in the executive order are all of these uh, guidance tools, right? And that might be what ends up trickling down into the actual legislation. So so if you're not, uh, I'm once again, you know, I'm not sure how familiar you are or how familiar your audience is with this, but uh, the structure of a lot of executive orders are something like this. Uh, here are the concrete things that we intend to establish with this executive order, which are usually like five to 10% of the ex executive order. And then here are all of these things that kind of would be nice if, you know, someone did. And usually those are things that, you know, there's no executive authority to do that requires an legislation or, or they'll establish these committees, right? They'll establish this is something that the Biden executive order does ad nauseum is that they 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 establish these committees to kind of look into to investigate various um various factors um you can really see this for you know for all the uh for all the kind of special interests in the democratic party there's one on uh, i'm just reading through it now there's one on ai safety and security that those are the kind of effective altruist concerns uh protecting americans privacy um this is very strange. I, I mean, like to, to me, it's very strange considering that, you know, we, we have the Snowden leaks. We know who the number one threat to American privacy is. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's, it's not open AI, um, <laughs> advancing, advancing equity and civil rights. Um, th this relates to some of my other uh, reporting. There's 
uh, essentially like civil rights law, legal measures that uh, basically uh, the, the EEOC, the, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and basically left-wing legal groups use to try to sue various companies to, to you know, for example, prevent AI from being honest about um, what are, you know, scientifically proven biological sex differences right, right. and various other, you know, inconvenient truths. Uh, so, so in my view, very, very negative. Um, we have this section titled Standing Up for Consumers, Patients and Students, which are basically like, you know, what, what this really means is that like, you know, we're, we're going to give bribes to the American Medical Association and uh, teachers unions. That That's what it actually means. <laughs> um, you know, supporting workers, you can see that it's all, you know, it's all it's all political speak. Yeah. But, you know, that this is the thing where they talk about like worrying about automation you know, there, there might be some legitimate concerns about automation as well. So maybe, you know, maybe this section could have some could have some uh, good stuff, could have some like unemployment insurance or something. But once again, it's like not there, there there's nothing uh, concrete in each of these headings, really. It's mostly, you know, it's mostly committees. It's mostly setting up guidance. Right. So, so when you have I, I think that many people use this metaphor, it's a cliche, but sort of a good cliche that running the federal government is sort of like steering a large ship by like two degrees, right? So when they put out these executive orders, it's they they're essentially putting, you know, different people, they're, they're steering the large apparatus of think tanks, of special interests, of of executive agencies in, in a general direction, in a vague direction. And I don't think that like I mean, a lot of people complain about the vagueness of the executive orders. I, I don't think that the vagueness of the executive orders is a particular problem. I just think that, you know, many of these specific executive agencies and they're, you know, taking their past behavior and, you know, the consequences that that, that has had on the economy, on, you know, actual lives in the case of something, uh, in the case of something like COVID, right? I think that it's been on net negative. And I'm worried that's the same thing might happen if there's just a kind of blunder into AI regulation. Got it. Okay. Right. It's, it, we don't want to COVIDify uh, AI because then you're going to have a bunch of people telling you that something is real that is not real, right? Which we saw during AI, or sorry, saw during COVID, obviously. So these AI safety people, I mean, how much of it is genuine concern that, you know, the chat GPT is going to be racist versus sort of regulatory capture? You know, I mean, how much of it is basically them trying to put themselves in a situation where they're going to be like, you know, you got a license for that, for that AI, you know, and like, they're just going to be making money from it versus how worried are they really that it's like, you know, the, I mean, what is really their fear? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I should, I should give a quick, quick disclaimer. The kind of like the like AI is racist people and like the AI safety people are, are two like, they're different actually different. Right. Yeah. They're the, different the AI people. safety people are the like AI is going to kill everyone. Yes. People. They're the paperclip. Yeah. The paperclip people. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> you, you've heard of the paperclip maximizer. Yeah. That, okay. So great. can you just tell us okay. so people, because my biggest critique I get in the show is I have no idea what you're talking about. 
So can you tell us what 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 I'm talking about? Or so right, like, right. What, I was worried to mention is, this because it's kind of obscure. But um, I think this is. I forget which book exactly. Let me just Google. Isn't it what's his name? Isn't it? Uh, isn't it? Pretty sure the, it's Kurzweil. It, it, it's it's Kurzweil? Uh, No, like, it's not. It's Bostrom. It's Bostrom. Bostrom. Uh, it was right? one of the Bostrom. two. It was one of the two. Um, I'm glad I googled it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. So Nick Bostrom, 2003. Yeah. So so this was a very early EA example of like a scenario. Uh, very early effective altruist example of how AI could kill everyone. The the scenario is something like this. You put an AI that's much more powerful than any human or group of humans in charge of uh, a paperclip factory. You try to get it to, you know, you, you try to get it to uh, make more paperclips because that's that's its job. And because it is sort of narrow, its goals are so uh, what they call narrowly defined, which means it doesn't involve a lot of kind of common sense, broader things. It will do a lot of destructive things in order to make more paperclips. It may, for example, you know, kill people if, as long as killing those people results in it getting more resources to make paper clips. And, you know, it might deceive people. It might lie. It'll try to prevent itself from being turned off. You know, people might realize that uh, people might realize that it's killing people and try to stop it from killing people and shut it down. But it, it's incentivized to make sure that people can't do that. So it's incentivized to essentially go rogue and avoid human control. Right. It's essentially this, you know, it's this kind of toy example that uh, they use to to talk about how uh, AI might might kill a lot of people just which, from just yeah. just from trying to accomplish the simple thing of making more paperclips. Which is, it's funny that the paperclip maximizer has become the stand-in because this idea is like very old. I mean, like this is how from 2001 is basically this. iRobot is basically this, right? I mean, uh, Skynet is basically this. All of these are examples of AIs gone rogue, right? And then like they they go rogue in such a way that means that they're willing to liquidate human beings to achieve their goal, which is, you know, some goal that was programmed into them a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, right? Like I, I give this example all of the time, which is, you know, imagine if someone got up you know, if someone like running for president, okay, none of these people are running for president. But imagine if like a semi-prominent, you know, think tank got up and said, our foreign policy goal, our foreign po policy priority should be to prevent Thanos from destroying half of the universe. You know, we, we don't laugh. It's at, you know, I, I come up with this term ad cinema fallacy. It's like, you know, what, what happens on the TV screen? That's real life. Um, <laughs> And unfortunately, this is this is some people's approach to um, to tech policy. You know, yeah, I, I say this in a joking way, but I mean this unironically. There are people whose approach to tech policy is based on Black Mirror, based on you know right. all of these series of literal fiction. Yeah. Right. Of, you know, completely, right. you know, <laughs> right, right. very transparently. I see. Fake, okay. I, I see. What you're transparent, okay, yeah, yeah, transparent yeah, yeah. you right. know, yeah, yeah, cinematography. Yeah. These right, things designed right. to evoke emotion. Yeah. 
And, you know, people will come up to me and unironically say, you know, these stories were so, so compelling. Don't you think that there's a grain of truth there? I'm like, no, it's literally the opposite. It's literally the opposite. (laughs) They're compelling because they're at liberty to make dramatizations. It's, It's precisely the opposite. Yeah. That's an interesting point. I mean, but aren't the aren't the people who are the doomers, the AI doomers who are believing that it's going to, you know, turn us into paperclips? Who's the 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 big Twitter account who's like known for this now? Uh, there are a few of them. Uh, do you mean uh, Eliezer Yudkowsky? Yeah, yeah, Eliezer yeah, yeah. Yud, 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 the airstrikes right? guy. Yeah, yeah, Eliezer Yudkowsky. And what's his thing? He has something of. Uh, uh, he, he, I think he's known for having like the the highest uh the highest like percentage of doom the highest yes. uh, he, he right. he's the most certain that ai is going to kill everyone like the people who think that ai is going to kill everyone they have various estimates they go from like 10 percent 20 percent i think like yukowski says it's like 99 percent. so that's right, part of what he's known kill for. Us all, right he was and also the, very the... early on this too. so so he was like he he was into um ai risk from you know more i think like more than a decade ago at this point Right. So uh, there's also Roko's Basilisk, which yeah. is pretty, which is pretty cool. Uh, I think his name I think his name is Rocco. He's he's Rocco. Uh, been on my podcast. Right. Yeah. Rocco's Basilisk. So what's Rocco's Basilisk? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um so I think this is this is this is actually like significantly less policy relevant than the than the than the paperclip maximizer many fewer people are kind of motivated by this but this was a kind of big internal ea thing back in the day uh so 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 like if you imagine that if you already believed that there's going to be a future where there's a super a super intelligent ai takes over then once that AI takes over, you would basically expect it to seek vengeance. That's that's the assertion. So Rocco's Basilisk is the idea that if you know about AI and you seek to prevent AI, then that AI is going to, the, the, the future AI that's going to happen will seek vengeance on you. Exactly. And... A lot of people are, or like not not a lot of people, I should say. Like this is something that's that's more obscure. I think that more newer people in like EA are are, are like much less likely to know about this than like the paperclip thing. But this is something that, uh, according to some self reports, have uh very much traumatized some early eas uh well it's like I, I, uh it's like because the, the upshot is that if you say something now against you know if you now are saying something negative about ai in the future ai is going to come after you <laughs> so yeah yeah exactly so you better exactly. not say anything now against it because you're signing your death warrant like into the future, which is just a hilarious like thought experiment, right? Right, right. Somebody needs to make like a TV show of like the X-Men of all of these like, you know, scary AI like futures, you know, they need the paperclip maximizer. They need Roko's Basilisk. They need like Hal and like, you know, they need all the like bad Skynet. 
like a, a ninja turtles of like all these like bad AIs gone wrong, you know? We, we get yeah, we get all of the we get all of the evil AIs at once. Yeah, um, in like one show, just so they can like hang out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> slice of life drama based on based on right. the AI. Yeah, this is this is great. This is great. <laughs> this um, is content. You okay, know. so what are they like? What are they so? Uh, you know, the, the, these are the AI safety people versus the AI is racist people, right? And the AI, what is the fear of the AI? So that's a whole different, why are they different? Like, what's exactly the complaint of the I, I AI is racist? I think actually, Eliezer, Eliezer had a really good tweet about this. Um, he, he was, he, I don't remember the exact tweet right now. I can link it after. But he said something like, the AI is racist. People are like so committed to drawing lines between ethnicities that they group the like super pro AI people and the anti AI people in one category, right? So so like so like the AI people, the pro pro AI people are like you know AI will benefit all of humanity. The anti AI people are like AI will destroy all of humanity. And like once they see the word humanity, they their brain just like stops working. <laughs> they they just think like humanity everyone in the same boat no we can't have this you know and that's why they that's why they they have have equal vitriol for the eas and the yeah. eax they have equal vitriol for the people who want you know much more ai and the people who want to stop all ai it's because you know if, if there's anyone you know as long as the frame is uh you know as long as reality is not about you know, intra-ethnic or inter-ethnic conflict, then, you know, that's, that's power being taken away from the, uh, right. from the AI. Right, 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 right. Yeah. No, these are the AI bias people. Right. And yeah, they're like, yeah. this is this woman who I've seen before, Timnit Gebru. Yeah. Yeah. Her? Oh my God. Who Who's basically like the Jesse Jackson of AI, you know, like she, she comes around, like she get, just shakes you down. Like basically in organizations, you have to just pay her to go away, you know, and she'll give yeah, you like yeah, stamp yeah. many such like, cases. Many your such AI cases. is not racist, you know, like here's your stamp and like then you get to go. Yeah, the, the funny thing is, no, there, there's uh, I remember we were we were DMing about this. There's uh, this meme. She's like very made fun of now. Um, people call her a stochastic parrot, which is very funny. Dude, um, well, you this is such a great word that I just learned from you that I'm now like using all the time. <laughs> stochastic parrot is the best phrase ever, and she totally is one. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's this idea, right? There, there's this idea from a paper that she wrote with like I don't know, 15 other people or something like that. You know how it is with yeah, the policy yeah. papers. I'm sure she wrote. Um, it. I'm sure she. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Sure yeah. Um, but yeah. um, there, there's this paper which, I mean, I, I would think better of her if she didn't write, write it, but but for better or worse, sure, it's sure, associated sure. with her right. now. But um, the, there's this idea asserting that you know AI will never be able to create, be creative. It will never be able to write new pieces of art, new pieces of text. Um, you know, it will never um, contribute meaningfully because you know it's just generating things that have already been generated before. Yeah, and you know if if you're someone who's used open AI, who's used ChatGPT, who's used Dolly or Midjourney, um, or you know what are at this point hundreds of new AI apps in this blossoming economy, you would know that you know you you give you give the AI a prompt, you know you get this completely new image, you get like 
<laughs> you've seen this trend of like uh make the most american picture possible <laughs> have you seen this I'll, I'll link the twitter thread i think it's yeah impo- well, no, it's, it's important like, for each... the listeners to see this but it's... yeah sorry go ahead you know to, to quote you know to quote a famous uh decision you know it when you see it you see yeah. the pictures this is not something it's not something that's existed before you know this is something that is you know you might think it's it's not the best work of art ever but it's a new work of art and it's something that you know if, if like you know, if like a 19 year old art student handed this in, you'd be like, holy shit, this is a great piece of art, right. you know, not in terms of like, oh, it's like, you know, you know, it's a Mona Lisa, but in terms of like, it's interesting, it has a new idea, it's it's creative, it's original, you know, all of these things that people, people like uh, Gebru were saying, you know, would never happen. And, and so this, this term is sort of mocked now, and it's sort of mocked the other way that it's mocked, of course, is that, you know, Gebru's ideology and many people like her are kind of repeating what's socially desirable, are repeating all of these kind of cultural, um, you know, you can call it a noble lie, but, you know, I think it's a lot less than noble, these kind of delusions about, you know, th- that there can't be any sex differences, uh, you know, su- provably scientifically false that, you know, denying, you know, heritability uh, in terms of genetics, in terms of intelligence, in terms of all these other factors that uh, are much more, you know, are much more designed to uh, be, you know, conform to the crowd rather than to be scientifically accurate. And the punchline is like, they're the stochastic parrots, right? They're they're the people who are who are just repeating things. It's not the AI. It's actually like these activist types. It's actually them. They're they're the. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because what stochastic means just to, to define what a stochastic parrot is, stochastic is like the distribution of randomness that would occur without any influence, right? That's basically what stochastic means. It's like it's like yeah, pretty much with, without any guidance. It's what a system or a person, or maybe is it just a is it a single actor or is it a system? It's what a what a person is gonna think that what they're gonna arrive at on their own without interference randomly, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so like in in kind of stats, we would say like a stochastic process is a process where each each step of the process is generated in a way that is not that does not essentially does not take additional input from the outside world right so if you think of uh if you think of a machine where you kind of press the button and it like spits out a number and then spits out another number and then spits out another number and this is sort of independent from the the things happening in the outside world then then that's that's like a stochastic process Right. Yeah, it's just the perfect randomness. So, but it's actually weird because a random number number generator is actually really hard, right? Like an actually right, genuine right. random number generator is actually like really difficult to create, isn't it? Because it's hard yeah, to get pe- people say to like random. there's all these um, you know ways that people do it from physics. Yeah. Um, there's like the heat lamps. Do you, yeah, you, there's these, like, these are funny that, right. stories. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure how how much you want to go into them, but like these are very funny stories. I think your your audience would enjoy them. Like what? Yeah, go tell us. Why. Yeah, yeah. So so like, um, there there was a company back in the day that 
just like take pictures of heat lamps and then convert those into numbers. And that's how it would give random numbers. Like the heat lamps would just move around. There's like different colors in them. And this was like state of the art cryptography was taking like PNGs of heat lamps and con converting them into numbers. But wait, how would you convert? What, now, what, what does a heat lamp have to do with it? Like, what, what do you mean? Like, how would that be a number? Oh, so so there are like these these heat lamps, right? Or like these lava lamps or whatever they're called. Yeah, lava lamps. Uh, yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And they have, you know, these different colors and they kind of move around based on the based on, you know, whatever physics goes goes Just inside random. Of them. Yeah, okay, right. They're moving. Yeah, around and the the idea is that they're basically random, right? The patterns that you get are random. I see. So, you know, you take a picture of it, you you know, each of those, each pixel in the picture has a different color and that's based on you know what the heat heat lamp looks like in reality oh, and you take yeah, you take yeah. this these sequence of of colors and each of those colors correspond to a number you do various things to turn that number into something that uh can be useful that's in the yeah. range that you actually want and then you know off it goes off it goes uh you know right. we have we have successfully turned uh turned randomness into a product well, but the problem is then you look into it and then you realize, oh, but the lava lamp is actually purple, you know, 40% of the time. And it's only these yeah, other yeah, numbers, yeah. you know what I mean? So it's not actual randomness, right? Because then- Right. There were people there were people who did this like unironically who were like, the lamps, they ain't random enough. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. There's some like and... little percentage- yeah. yeah, and people, I think people do use, like, background radiation now, yeah. which yeah. theoretically could be interfered with, with in other ways, but yeah. it, it really is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful yeah. thing of, like, human ingenuity that they keep finding new ways of, like, generating random numbers. Of random number generating. Yeah, that's fascinating. Wait, so, um, that's a great story. Uh, I, I had no idea about that. That's, like, the lava lamp, <laughs> the lava lamp number generator. Um, so, okay. But here's where you and I start. This is where I start to, to get a little bit confused uh, in my own right. So the best article, and we've talked about this several times, the best article or my favorite article on AI so far is by Ted Chang, who I think is a sci-fi writer, uh, like a Chinese sci-fi writer. And, uh, did Ted Chang write the third, third, three body problem? No, that's another guy. No, no. Yeah, um, yeah. Ted Chang's a different Chinese sci-fi. Name right? wasn't that long. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So he's actually an American, but Chinese American. Um, oh, he wrote Arrival. There you go. Uh, so Ted Chang, yeah, yeah, the three-body problem guy is uh, Liu Shishin. Yeah, Liu Shishin. Right. Right. Um, so anyway, so Ted Chang writes this article in the New Yorker, probably the last good article the New Yorker's ever published. Uh, call, saying that ChatGPT is a blurry JPEG of the web. And what he's, you know, he compares it in the beginning to a photocopy machine. And a photocopy machine, you know, takes, uh, takes a code copy of a, a computer code copy of a document. And it has probabilities, just like any condensed document or what do you call it? Um, uh, what do you call it? Condensed, not condensed. Compressed. Compressed. compressed Just like any compressed yeah. document, a compressed document is basically like a probability generator and then 
some of the data. So you have like 10% of the data of this file, and then you have some mechanism with which to like reproduce that 10% uh, as a copy, right? But anytime you do that, anytime you compress and then reproduce, you have what's called generation loss. And generation loss is the imperfections of that copying mechanism, more or less, right? So his point is that ChatGPT basically works in the same way. It's like, it's digesting all of the data and then it's reproducing it in this sort of blurry probabilistic way that sort of simulates originality, but actually isn't originality. It's just sort of the, the image of originality. So what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, I think this is what I said before, is that kind of all, or like at least most AI analogies are awful. And this one is on the less bad end. Okay. Um, let's start with what it copies or let's start with what it communicates well. Um, one is the, the loss process is basically correct in that, you know, if you're deciding, even if you're just like perfectly, even if you're perfectly kind of, you have a perfect arbiter of everything on the web and someone asks you like, is X true, right? Is, is this certain fact true? And you need to take all of the information on the web and summarize it. No matter how you summarize it, you're going to lose a lot, right? You're not going to get a lot of nuance. You know, someone who's reading ChatGPT only has so much time in the day. There's going to be a lot of compression there. So so that that is great. That, I think, really accurately captures, you know, hallucinations, why a lot of the kind of errors on factual matters happen. That part is great. Where... Where it gets more dubious to me is this idea that it's sort of representative, right? Like a like a JPEG is sort of representative of the of the previous thing. Where I don't think that this is actually true. For example, you know, like how similar is the gener how similar is uh the output of ChatGPT to like the median Reddit answer you would get to the same question. Uh, and, and of course, you know, it's not just taking information but from Reddit, but from a variety of sources. But, you know, if you could theoretically have a median response on the Internet, right, how similar is it actually to the median response of the Internet? Where would it rank in the in the sequence of responses? Right. And I would say just from my own experience, I'm not sure if there's been any attempt at quantifying this, you know, it would rank at least in like the 95th percentile, if not more. So like, you know, the top 5% of responses, at least. So I think it's more useful than like 95% of the of the shit that people would would tell me on the Internet. Right. And, you know, that's maybe that's that's not perfect right but that seems very different than say say like you know a quote-unquote blurry jpeg uh it seems it seems even more obvious with like image generation right you, you know i gave the you know when you see it point right i talked about you know the most american image ever i think that's kind of that's that's a technique of bringing this out where it's undeniable right if you make an image that's sort of more extreme in one direction than anything that's made before it right so so um we call this like extrapolation, right? You can use, you know, there, there's a difference between interpolation and extrapolation where interpolation is kind of generating something that is like the median of two outputs, which you can also do, right? 
you can i think that's more more easy for people to say is like uncreative right so for example if you had a picture of a dog and you had a picture of a cat you might say like generate the midpoint of these images right generate something that looks like half of this half of this cat or something that's like in between like 50% this cat and 50% this dog someone might take a look at that you know chat i would say that chat gpt or like dolly does that quite well but someone would be like oh that's all that's just taking the stuff that's already available and you know recombining it you know um, I, I'm not sure they would say that about a person who does this, but you know that that's what they say. But if you say something like you know make the most American image ever or make like the spiciest image ever, you know that then, then that's I, I think that is a quite easy way to disprove that to show that ChatGPT is or like Dolly in this case using ChatGPT is in fact like very capable of extrapolation. But you see like these these processes where you get it to generate, you know, you can get it to generate a Shakespeare play on a on a specific topic. You can get it to generate, you know, in sonnet form, by the way, you can get it to generate, you know, um, uh, uh, a White House executive order. <laughs> um, you can get get it to generate. You know, you can get it to generate various uh, statistical graphs based on data. You can get it to generate code that has, you know, provable functionality that it provably does something that, you know, no one has done specifically in the past. Right. You have all these very extreme. I, I think that on a kind of philosophical level, it gets very easy once you take it into the realm of abstractions. It can be very easy to people for people to fight over nothing to people to fight over rhetoric, for people to fight over these vague definitions where essentially what they're doing is that they're trying to just define things in a way where they can circle back to the things that they've defined, right? If you kind of define AI as never being creative, then you'll always come back to the conclusion that AI is never creative because you're not really, you're dealing with things that have no actual connection to reality. But once you get to the even the most bare bones connection to reality, once you get to, you know, the I know when I see it thing with images, once you get to uh, the same thing with asking ChatGPT to make a Shakespearean sonnet, right? It, it becomes, it just goes the other way. And you might say that with many of these things, with art, with literature, it's very difficult to create a clear uh, definition of this, even between humans, right? It's very difficult, it's subjective to compare humans, but any reasonable person who is looking at the output and uh, is comparing it to uh, things that they would find acceptable or things that they would consider creative or novel or interesting that, you know, people output um, or that people, you know, create that you can see this even in the in the language game there, right? Um, it becomes impossible to draw a line where you would say he above this line is human creativity and, you know, below this line is all work that AI has ever produced. It becomes completely impossible, you know? It, there, there is no Turing test. Right. Well, I think it comes down to also, um, there's no Turing test, meaning there's no way to actually tell if it's thinking or not, right? Yeah, yeah. Or, or it really is most obvious on this issue of creativity. Once again, I think that thinking, you know, it's one of these abstract things. It's one of these things where... It depends a lot on the definition, what what is considered actual thinking versus what is not. 
Right. And once again, you can do that kind of like red line test, right? You know, show me the red line where uh, everything ChatGPT does is below it and everything you would consider humans thinking is above it. I think that even on, on something as vague as thinking, it's pretty hard to draw a definition. Maybe it's possible. But on something on cre like creativity, on something like, you know, novelty, some creating something that has never been created before, that I think is at least more stable of a definition. And on that issue, I think it's just completely, the red line test is just completely impossible. It's just completely impossible to say that like, oh, there are, you know, all these humans with creativity and there's this AI that is never possible, where it's never possible for it to be creative. Right. Uh, it's just, it's just not the case. It's just not true. Well, I would certainly agree with you that the red line test that you're talking about is impossible. And I think the reason for that is that as I, the, the example you gave of the average answer on the internet is very is a very, very good one. And, and that that does raise some questions about what's actually happening. Or if, you know, again, I think you're not going to ever be able to even answer what's actually happening. Right. So it's almost pointless. And I think the test that you're talking about is uh, is very true. It's that you're never going to be able to truly parse the difference between something that is solely synth synthesis versus something that has actual originality in it, right? Because human creativity is also all synthesis, right? I mean, you can't, there's no way to actually tell, uh, you know, is that Picasso painting completely new or is it just a million inputs kind of crossed and linked and coming up with this blended uh thing right there's really no way to tell there's no way to test hu human intelligence that way and there's no way to test machine intelligence that way i think that that's true um so but that does bring up the question of like what actually is happening right so people use this example or they use the metaphor all the time of the neural net right yep and it's funny because people mix up their metaphors in this way that really drives me nuts where they think neural net that means like neurons and therefore they think like since the neurons in my brain are shaped like a net that's what's happening in the computer but really a neural net is not i mean it's kind of like using neurons as a metaphor but a neural net is called a neural net why uh i think i mean once again you know all all analogies are you know faulty degree but i think that the neural net analogy is actually a great one so um the way that it's formally defined at least like earlier versions of uh these large language models these uh transformer models uh often use this function called uh relu uh i forget what exactly it stands for uh the Relu. rectified linear activation function where does the U come from? Oh, it's F U. Wait, why? Okay, so so it's called. Oh, it's a rectified linear unit. Okay, okay, that's what it stands for. Uh, thank you, Google. Um, but it uses this function that does actually kind of simulate how a real neuron works, right? Okay. Um, so, not wait. directly. You know, it's not exactly. It's not like literally the same function. But you know, there's this idea that uh, a neuron gets uh, various inputs 
from synapses. And then once it reaches some level of activation, it fires, right? So uh, the, the, ReLU, the, the ReLU function, which is this mathematical function that essentially um, determines uh, the output from one part of the machine learning network to another part of it, uh, is kind of inspired by that. It's not exactly the same thing. Uh, the, the human version is a lot more nuanced and can't be modeled so simply mathematically. Well, I don't think the don't parallel is all that the, bad. The, the, the reason for that is because we don't know what's inside a neuron, right? I mean, it's like we we see the neurons making connections with each other, but with a computer neuro, computer neural net, what is a computer neural net? Maybe we just start with that because I don't actually fully 100% even know what it is. What is a neural net? Right. So th this has varied a bit across the years, but... The I think the basics are the same, which is essentially you have various um, components. You can call them neurons. You can call them nodes. Um, and uh, what this event, what this essentially, uh, what this essentially does is that it takes uh, information from one of those nodes and passes it on to the next. Right. right. And and it's not just, you know, it's not just one line of nodes in sequence, but it's, well, it's a net of them. Right. Um, we refer to it as sort of having layers. Right. So you can think of there being one layer of of nodes of these essentially like. Um, you can think of each node as like a very simple machine that essentially takes a bunch of, of inputs and then gives a bunch of outputs. Right. Um, and you can think of each layer as having multiple of these nodes. So multiple of these nodes take in various inputs. At the start, they take in the input from the user, right? Which is you know the prompt in in the case of language models, or it might be um, it might be an image in terms of recognition models, or so on and so forth. And each of these layers takes some portion of the information applies some sort of mathematical transformation to it, right? So it basically like multiplies it by something and then adds something else and then passes that information to the next layer. And then the Wait, next layer also consists of nodes and does the same thing. Why is it multiple? Because I, I just figured it was like a bunch of gates, right? And it was like, you know, like red, yes or no. And then that gets you to the next level. And then it's like, no, it's not red. Is it, you know, curved? And then like it, it goes, but you're saying it's like it adds something to it. What what does that mean? Yeah. So, so like the logic gates, that kind of is what's happening at base hardware, right? If, if you think about like the actual like computer architecture, yeah, right? Like that is how all the circuit boards work. Right, that's like so. So you're not completely wrong, but like the decision process of the neural networks is actually just like a lot harder to understand. It's not like right. th this is actually one of the complaints of like many people. I, I think like many of the much more uh, reputable and admirable people in the uh, in the AI safety crowd, what they call uh, technical AI safety, is that it's very hard to draw like chains of logic from AI. Um, what you kind of said there, like, is it red? Is it curved? Like something like yeah. that. Um, that's not identifiable in the pattern. Um, so it's not it's not like a sequence of logic gates. Yeah, there are some kind of factors which um, people working in uh, 
technical AI safety and specifically what they call interpretability have done. Um, this is another link that I should probably actually, let me just write down all of these links. So I need the, um, well, but then, so what, yeah, sorry, I'll just let you, uh, yeah. So, so the big problem here is that, uh, big problem here is that you know these patterns are th these patterns where uh some feature is identified or like some uh numerical application is transformed um i mean i'm speaking in all these vague ways because the actual process is very vague what we essentially did is we took this very general optimization process and then uh, th this thing that we use for solving kind of abstract math problems, or maybe not so abstract, solving like applied math problems, um, like um, what's the, he here is some like profit function, let's try and maximize the profit function given a bunch of like simplified economic models, right? Uh, not sure how much that makes sense, how much I should explain on that. Yeah, explain but like that. basically explain we took, so, so okay, actually, um, so, so I did a very old, there's a very old article I wrote that's related to this. Um, let me just write this down as well. Yeah, there's an old article I wrote that's very related to this, um, explaining many of these features. And I start from the, from the analogy or like real intellectual predecessor of uh, gradient descent. So essentially, in the like pre-machine learning era, there were a lot of mathematical, like extremely simple relative to machine learning mathematical processes that basically you would use with statistics or economics um, to take a very simplified understanding of a topic or a system and try to optimize for it. So you might say, you know, a very simple version of this is like you have the supply and demand curve, right? And you try to optimize for the point where you make the most, where you make the most profits. Um, this, this is obviously like super oversimplified. And then gradient descent is like one level of abstraction above that where you have, um, so, so the metaphor that people use is kind of hill climbing, right? Yeah. Is that you have this kind of 2D landscape of uh, of how good uh, a function is, right? So you might have two variables and the, hi the height of the variable is, you know, the, the height of the variable is how good something is, right? You might have two variables and the height of the height of the third axis is like, you know, how much money do I make? And, you know, the intuitive explanation for this algorithm is that, you um you just go towards the higher point right you, you you can think of standing on one point in this 2d plane right on basically you're standing on like land right and then the land goes up in one direction uh which you expect to to be better right which represents things being better and so you'll walk up the hill you'll you'll walk up the direction where it, it, you expect it to be better and you know, there's a problem where you might get stuck on one of these smaller hills where uh, it's called a local maximum, where, you know, you might be on top of a hill, but you can see in the distance, there's like a bigger hill mm -hmm. that you could uh, th that you could climb if 
if you actually got down from the first hill. Yeah. But this this is seen as a kind of more naive way to optimize your um optimize for some some kind of result. So machine learning took this uh very simple way of taking feedback from information, this very simple way of hill climbing, and essentially distributes it over a larger network. So we basically took uh, and this this in uh, machine learning terms, very oversimplified, of course, is called backpropagation. So backpropagation is applying the same step of looking at the, this hill that we could climb and saying like, oh, we should probably go in this direction and applying it backwards through multiple layers. So if you remember back to the neural net analogy, you start with one layer that gives information to the next layer that gives information to the next layer. And it does these mathematical operations to change it. Well, how are those mathematical operations uh, actually uh, come up with, right? Why do we multiply it by certain numbers? What, what numbers do we multiply it by? Uh, and so on and so forth. So the answer is that they kind of start off random. And as you train the machine learning network, right, as you give it more information, more examples of what the correct answer looks like, it will backpropagate those results to uh, to each step of the network. Ah, I see. Okay. So you're, yeah. okay. I'm following what, how originally do you teach a computer how to hill climb? Um, so, so the original hill climbing function is basically you... like very simple calculus, right? You know, like like if you've you know if you remember from no, like I just how do you tell it to how do you direct it where to see? You know what I mean? Like how do you tell it to see the hill? Yeah. So, um, yeah, the original way of doing gradient descent, um, this varies a bit, but the fundamental function is basically looking at the slope between either two points or or but or uh, on one point right so this is kind of like uh 12th grade calculus but um the slope of a line is uh is basically uh calculated by the derivative right so um in when there's more variables when it's two dimensions or more um, the slope of the line is calculated in a pretty similar way, right? You just take all of the partial derivatives. Um, th this is more like first year, but basically like you, you do some like very straightforward calculus and that that is essentially like a formula for the slope of the line. Got it. And so you're somehow, to like again, I'm not a calculus guy, but you're somehow teaching the computer how to see which slope it should choose, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. You're, you're somehow indicating it to it, go in this direction, make choices in this direction, more or less. And somehow you can teach a computer to do that. Like it can climb up a line like pretty reliably. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um. So so the problem, the, the, the problem with like normal, um, normal gradient descent is that it will get stuck once it reaches the top of like any hill. It might not be the best hill. Um, and there are various ways that you can avoid this. You know, um, this is a little bit yeah, simplified. Yeah, you're saying it, it, won't, it won't go all the way to the top if there's any grooves. If there's grooves in the hill, it can't make it to the top of the hill. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so machine learning is a way to avoid this fundamental problem. Ah, okay. I got it. Wow. 
because somehow, God, you're taking like steps back from that original calculus. Say say it one more time. I sort of grasped, grasped it. I'm getting the hill climbing. I'm getting where it gets stuck. But then what's this thing called? So, so one intuition yeah. of how it works is that like, you're only getting stuck in the gradient descent version because your vision is like very limited your your is it, vision be, is almost why is it like gradient descent wouldn't it be gradient ascent yeah um it's kind of equivalent right okay <laughs> that's, that's like if you think tough. about it like finding yeah. the lowest point and finding the highest point are kind of like the same problem just like Got flipped it. upside down right okay okay gradient descent gradient ascent, same thing all right yeah yeah okay. you, you can call it like gradient ascent um and and it will describe like exactly the same problem <laughs> so so yeah um uh, it doesn't like, it, it doesn't matter all that much yeah but yeah um so so you can think of the problem as like your vision just being very limited right if you somehow had an understanding that like oh if you took the line from if you took like your the current point you're standing on on top of one hill and the point on the other hill and that you know the slope is positive there then it would be kind of obvious, right? In fact, like like as like a human being, right? If you're standing on top of one hill and you can see in the distance like a higher peak, right? It's kind of obvious, like oh, th that point over there, it's taller, right? Yeah. But I think that when you're doing gradient descent, the the kind of vision, uh, if we're using that that analogy here, is just much more limited. So one way of making that vision much more complex is by adding these additional layers and having basically multiple pathways in which you could see the 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 taller hill. Yeah. Right. But then how are you doing that because you you're saying you're you're like you said it a second ago. You're putting like more layers in but then you're letting you're like the way you're teaching the computer is you're basically letting it fail and then it's like changing its own math, right? Yeah, it's basically applying some it's applying something in the correct direction, right? So, you know, let's say that you're let's say that once again you're trying to correct and guess some number. Uh let's say let's say you're trying to just get it to add two numbers, right? This is a very uh simple example. Um you you know, you give it some feedback and um or or something even even more simple like let's just say you're just asking a yes or no question you know is this a dog or a cat right um you might let's then you would make essentially you would have a mathematical representation of the answers so let's say it's like one if it's a cat and zero if it's a if it's a dog right and let's say that the answer can only ever be one of these uh it, it's either you know just a cat or just a dog you never get an image of like both um and you run one iteration of it uh, and you it gives you an answer. It says it's, you know, probably a cat, right? Let's say that's a not, let's say it's like 0 0.9. So like 90% chance it's a cat. And let's say it was a dog. Um, so, so it got the answer wrong. So how, how wrong the answer was would be computed by something called a loss function. And then essentially you would use some calculus to um move move each step of the neural network towards something that would be closer to producing the correct answer right 
So for example, you know, the last layer, their computations directly result in the answer. So you would move their computations in a direction where it would be more likely to just output, you know, this is a dog. And then the layer before that, you would move its computations in a way that makes it that it's more likely that they would give information to the next layer that would make the next layer output that it's a dog right. and so on and so forth. And like each of these individual points in the data, you know, each of these individual nodes, the way that they correct is going to be slightly different, right? They're going to be processing, they're going to be taking in different information. They're going to be outputting different information and uh, or, or outputting in their information to different places. And how they self-correct is going to change depending on that. Right. So, I mean, like, I, yeah, it's got it. I'm getting it theoretically, but I'm not, it's so hard to understand if you don't really understand calculus, but actually you are really helping my understanding here of um, AI a lot, because I think, yeah, I think somebody like me who doesn't really know these things. Yeah. I'm thinking of it, a neural net as like a giant Plinko machine, right. Where it's like just going through a million gates of yes or no. And, it's kind of arriving at this, uh, you know, answer for you that's, you know, blurry. It is a stochastic parrot, right? It's just kind of like taking the probabilities and reproducing them. Whereas what you're saying is that actually machine learning is about self-correcting. Like the machine itself is building its own mathematical calculus. And is that, is that uh like, can we see that calculus or is that like a black box for the people who train AIs? Can they see the algorithm that the machine arrives at? Does that question yes make no. any sense? <laughs> you can see the, like the calculus that's being done, right? Like you can, uh, people don't do this because it's, you know, it, it would require a lot of compute and a lot of storage. But you could theoretically print, like, so, so basically, each time you do this, um, it'll update the weights. Or not not exactly, because people will do it in batches. So you'll do, like, 100 images, and then you'll update the, uh, oh, the, the numbers that configure the network, the numbers that you multiply by or add by are called the weights. Sorry if I didn't uh, mention that. But the, those are the things that basically, like, update the network, right? Yeah. So... Um, you can see the up and the numbers that the updates that the network is updated with after each training iteration, right? After each batch of numbers, it'll update the or each batch of images, it'll update the numbers, and then you can see the numbers. And you know, theoretically, you could you could print every iteration of these updates, um, but usually there are you know like thousands, if not millions, of these, so it's kind of time intensive to do that but people will um people will definitely look at the look at the numbers um say within every you know couple million images or something like that right that's something that people definitely do uh it's a lot harder to take those numbers and like assign some kind of logic to them because yeah, I, yeah. fundamentally what you're looking at is like you're looking at a bunch of numbers and you know uh, I don't know about you, but I don't really draw any kind of deep reason, reasoning, kind of like logical meaning to like just a list of a million numbers. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. So, so, so this is a big problem. And I think it, it's part of what the kind of AI safety people 
are correct about and are doing like actual concrete steps to address. You know, like I said, this is kind of like the most admirable um, part of it. Part of it that I think no one would disagree on is just creating tools for uh, tools for people to kind of understand what's actually going on. Because quite simply, we like don't really understand what's going on. Um, we don't really understand like what what kind of logical pathways lead to what. Uh, and we also we also know that like ChatGPT doesn't really explain it accurately either, right? So so like one one like immediate question you could have is like okay let's say you get uh, ChatGPT to write like a Shakespearean sonnet you might just be like oh um, explain the decisions you made while writing the sonnet and it turns out that even if you give the same sonnet you know it never gives a very consistent explanation you know people suspect that it's really you know sort of bullshit you know <laughs> right uh i would say like correctly suspect that it's really sort of bullshit um yeah so we don't really know like no one knows like no like there's no like open ai researcher uh, at least to to my knowledge who like knows what the logic really is in chat gpt uh, yeah so they're not actually right the computer is doing it themselves with some kind of endlessly elaborate calculation but it would not even like make sense to a human being yeah exactly exactly Incredible. there was this very nice tweet by uh, this person named Neil Nanda, who who is one of the people who works on uh, this interpretability stuff. Yeah. And he was like, okay, so we created a model for uh, adding two numbers. So this yeah. should be very simple. And we went through each kind of neural network pathway to determine you know, what algorithm actually adds the numbers. And it turns out it's it's like this this insanely complicated mix of like you know a hundred cosines. It's this like thing that would be unreadable to like any human being, right? To That's take two amazing. numbers and add them, and it is equivalent to adding two numbers. It is like basically correct. Yeah. Damn, but it's this like so it's wild, it's this like man. inhuman you know it's a super unintuitive recombination of yeah. right. you know a hundreds of these variables. Well, but how did they get a calculator to work then? I mean, is it like, wouldn't that be true of a calculator too? Or does a calculator work in some sort of like brute force weird way? Yeah. So, so a normal, like a normal, you mean like a normal, like literal calculator, Like a right? literal calculator. Yeah. Like a, like a literal calculator. Like how yeah. do they get that? Um, a literal calculator is not machine learning. It just yeah. like, it's very easy to, to model logically. Right. So, so like, if you think about it, like there are, some things that are easier to represent uh, to a computer than other things, right? Yeah. Like complicated words and stuff. It's very difficult to represent. Yeah. Um, well, maybe until now, you know, but like in the, in, in the like 2000s, you would not be able to, to get a computer to write an essay. Um, in the early 2000s, you could get a computer to multiply two numbers because it's just a lot easier to, to represent, right? So, um, like essentially how a computer stores information is by um by these bits right these ones and zeros you see them in like animations of computers very often um but these bits you, it's very easy to represent numbers as bits because you know the first one or zero represents the first um the first digit right in in binary um 
you can think think of it as like the first number represents one, the second or the first digit represents one, the second digit represents two, the next digit represents four, and so on. And there's a very easy way to kind of read these numbers from memory and multiply them. So that's how normal calculators work, um, is that you just read them numerically, uh, you you read them from, from memory, which are stored in these like integer data formats, and then you multiply the two integer data formats. And this is very simple. These This is thing, the stuff that like, you know, Alan Turing was doing, right? This is stuff that, you know, well, ha this is stuff that happened at like the, from the dawn of computers. Right. And um, basically what Neil Nando was showing is that he was showing using like the LLM process or like the AI or like the machine learning process to do something we already know how to do and just using that as a comparison, right? So, so his, his, his thing is not some kind of innovation in like how to get computers to multiply numbers. His thing is like, uh, like a teaching, a learning, a learning moment for understanding that even if the request is something that's very simple, um, applying the machine learning network kind of methodology to it will result in a very convoluted uh, answer. Yeah, I got it. Right. It's a completely different mechanism. I, I get, get what you're saying. Like if you, if you had a machine learning calculator, uh, it would be extremely inefficient because it would be using this like ridiculous calculus to arrive at the same things that a very basic calculator can do. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, okay. So in our last 10 minutes here, uh, where is this all going to shake out? So tell us, you know, if the bad guys win, if the AL AI regulators win, uh, what does it look like versus if the EX win, what does it look like? That's, um, that's pretty hard. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so I can kind of give it in their own words. Um, so Mark Andreessen, who is, um, who I think still has EAC in his Twitter profile. Um, I'm not sure if that's true, actually. Um, but, but who at least has some point had EAC in his Twitter profile. Uh, he wrote this article called um, How AI Will Save the World. Uh, he talks about, you know, all these applications for AI, uh, he, that it can be used as a kind of personal tutor, as an assistant, he'll write your emails for you. It'll um, do a lot of the kind of, uh, we can say as like office busy work. Uh, it'll make starting a business much easier. It'll generate images for you. It can be your own PR team, right? It can generate all these, you know, social media. It can automate your social media accounts. Um, so, so like that's one world and, and like, importantly, when it comes to politics, um, Mark had this point originally, and I agree with him where he says that in a couple of years, there will be, you know, uh, there'll be a constituency for machine learning because, you know, everyone will be using machine learning. It'll be like, oh, what if we banned computers? Everyone would be like, what the hell? I use computers. Mm -hmm. Um, it'll be the same thing for machine learning. And yeah. I think that he's correct in saying that. Um, so, so like, that's an important point that like, we don't need to win for that long in order to win. Right. Yeah. Um, and in terms of, in, in terms of the regulatory stuff, there's a lot of futures, right? Like most, the most likely scenario isn't that we get like no regulation. It's that there's something, there's something in between. And in many cases, you know, some of those things could even be good if it's just, you know, um, using AI for fraud, right? Using AI for like these things that are already illegal, but maybe adding additional penalties or doing things that make it easier to convict, 
right? Uh, yeah. Could be, good could luck be with that. definitely good. Good luck with that. <laughs> I mean, that's when the uh, the race people are going to get mad, right? Because, yeah. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> um, and then you know there can be other other regulations. There's there's really an entire spectrum, right? Um, a very easy a very easy way to look at this is to look at uh, kind of existing overregulated sectors. And you know, you're, you're American, I'm American. Um, what are the most overregulated sector? What are the most like uh, non-functional sectors in America, it's medicine and it's housing, right? Yeah. So we can look at those as kind of cautionary tales. I would add energy to that mix, even though, you know, most people are not kind of directly exposed. They're indirectly, but not directly exposed to this. You're not kind of buying cars in the same way that you're like buying nuclear power plants. Um, I, I would hope that no one is buying nuclear power plants in your listenership. Um, or maybe I should hope that that, that yeah, would be kind I mean, of that based. Would be good. That but would yeah, be yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, people are not directly exposed to the regulation in the same way. Um, but yeah, you can look at the the ballooning costs in medicine, the the drastic slowdown in uh, just the rate that both new medicines are discovered, approved, are used. You know, we had we had a boom in this was part of you know. I think the second wave of the industrial revolution, right? It was people figuring out how to use um, how to use pharmaceuticals uh, in a kind of scientific, rigorous way. And many of those early medicines were not, you know, they were not these kind of p-hacked things. They were not these kind of silly things that were designed exactly in a way to get regulatory approval. But they were instead, you know, these exploratory, like penicillin, for example, right? Antibiotics, these kind of great major early discoveries, you know, um very effective vaccines you can look at like polio you know um essentially reduced to total extinction in western countries right um so you can see many of these early innovations and you can ask the question like why has it gotten so much slower and the answer in large part is because of the fda because of these processes um I'm not sure if you use the term anarcho tyranny on your uh, on your podcast, but yeah. essentially this process in which you know genuine innovation is very easy to crack down on. Like good actors are very easy to crack down on. Bad actors are very hard to crack down on. And a lot of the time, it can be much more convenient to crack down on good actors rather than crack down on bad actors, right? Um, and that is just the natural process if you're if you're someone who is tasked with like essentially having these quotas for you know stopping x people from doing things you're going to crack down on people who it's easier to stop and it's harder to stop this is a natural process not just in regulation but kind of in all uh in all sorts of law enforcement um but yeah i think that's you know skyrocketing prices in housing skyrocketing prices in uh in medicine uh you can kind of look at the education industry this is a little bit different because Unlike medicine and housing, I think we all agree that, you know, medicine and housing are things that you you kind of need, <laughs> but um, it is a bit different, but it is also kind of strictly controlled by uh, credentialing agencies. In many of these areas, this is kind of like very mainstream economics research. It's nothing, you know, super new or uh, relevant to AI, but I think that, you know, I would not like ChatGPT to cost as much as a house. <laughs> I would, I'll say that. Okay, so you're worried about the costs mostly. 
yeah, the cost or just like the slowdown, you know, it's not just it's not just that drugs are much more expensive, but in many cases, people whose lives could be saved them by yeah. them are not. Yeah, right. So that's a, that's an example where it's more urgent. So things will be slower. Things will be worse. Things will be harder to get access to at all, even if you have the money. Right. Um, things will be more more expensive. Yeah. It's so very typical regulatory problem. Right. I mean, your typical your typical issues with bureaucracy will just be hugely amplified in, in this. Yeah. And I think that people don't really get the, the scale in which this piles up as soon as you begin applying it to technology, especially with the FTC. Um, many people who work in like what we now call technology also don't get this. Um, there, there was once a day like if you if you talk about technology in like the 1900s, you know, the, exactly the most overrated industries are what they would be talking about, right? You know, uh, chemicals, uh, biology, understanding the human body, you know, traveling to space. That that's technology. You know, it's not like your stupid software startup. Now, I shouldn't say that. A lot of software startups <laughs> are nice. I'm I'm friends with a lot of people who make non-stupid software startups. Uh, SaaS, but you, you know, mean, you mean the SaaS revolution has been a disaster. For <laughs> human race it certainly, <laughs> it certainly has yeah exactly exactly i don't i don't think it's been that bad yeah, but yeah worse i i hope our whole next phase of technology is SaaS that makes us use less SaaS. you know like what, <laughs> that, that should just be the whole new trend is like what is the one program that will guarantee i'll spend less time using the other fucking programs that's all i want <laughs> yeah yeah i mean um, i mean chat gpt might be that you know yeah, that, totally. that's one of the things that, you know, that that's at least what Microsoft wants to do yeah, to, to make it the kind of everything, you know, to, to finally make Office to go from Microsoft Office being like these like, these like 16 apps that, you know, you, you barely even want to read or understand to being like this one functioning thing, uh, this one like functioning personal assistant thing. Um, who knows? Um, might work, might not work. Um yeah. not financial advice right you know um okay dude well cool thank you so much i think that i i don't want to speak too soon but i think you may have uh, officially changed my mind on uh, on ai i think i was very much in this stochastic parrot camp and now i think i'm no longer in the stochastic parrot camp so uh, I mean, I certainly was not in the camp with Timnit Gebru, but I just mean like in in terms of the understanding. Yeah, yeah. Just just thinking, you know, it's not a big deal. It's yeah, just, you know, right. It's, it's just, just like this thing. kind of toy. Now I'm sort of realizing that uh, I'm glad that I talked to you because I just needed somebody who was a little bit closer to it to explain, um, which I think you've done. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining. We'll send people to your Substack, um, and we'll send people to your um, to your think tank. Uh, what's your subset called one more time? Why don't you yeah. it? Yeah, uh, you can find it. The easy link to find it is from the new world, from the new dot world. And if you just want the AI stuff, it's at pluralism.ai. Oh. I also write about some other things that we um, haven't talked about, uh, things related to politics, economics, but, you know, <laughs> happy to talk about those on a, another episode. So that's from the new world, from the new dot world is the hyperlink, you know, spell the I'm words as you would normally spell them. I just them. subscribed. I just Awesome. Subscribed. Awesome. Another, another, uh, another great, great reader. The the yeah. community is great as well. Um, yeah. Nice. Uh, love Substack. Cool, man. And, you know, oh. um, if you're listening, subscribe to uh, subscribe to the Substack you're listening on right now as well. Yeah. You know? the plug. Yes. It's called the carousel. Um, awesome. All right. Um, thank you so much, Brian. We'll see you later.
See ya.